Welcome to Martial Wisdom. Here you can listen to conversations on all kinds of topics related to martial arts. Today's topic is how weapons training can improve your Aikido and sharpen your self-defense skills. Joining me in this discussion is Reg Sakamoto. Before we get started, please consider supporting this podcast by liking and sharing it. If you're interested in even more content, please consider subscribing to the Spirit Aikido online program. I'm proud to announce that the program currently has over 260 videos. Another option is to contribute any amount you like through the PayPal tip jar. Even small contributions are greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, on with the discussion. Welcome back to Modern Aikidoist Podcast and Martial Wisdom, and I'm glad to welcome my friend Raj Sakamoto back to this, this show and for another uh, really good discussion. Uh, I've been asking some of my guests what they what's in their heart and what they're passionate about talking about for subjects, and Reg came up with a great one, and it was how practicing the spear and the sword has affected his Aikido practice. And this is something that we are often told that weapons and the empty hand are very closely related. So I think that this is going to be a great subject. Uh, Reg, for, for people that don't know, you've got a, a tremendous uh, eclectic and, and uh, robust martial background that includes a lot of weapon work beyond just what a normal Aikido practitioner would, would learn. So maybe you could you could describe that a little bit so everybody who had, may not know your background is familiar with it. Sure. Okay. I'll, I'll just start from where I got started and breeze through what's not weapons related, but just to you know, throw in little kicks for it. So uh, I began martial arts in 1976. Um, I started with uh, jujitsu, but was like a Canadian jujitsu form. So it's kind of like a mix of judo, aikido, and point style uh, karate. Um, but they just called it jujitsu. So way back before the whole Brazilian jujitsu thing took over here in Canada. So not the same, not the same animal. Uh, from there in high school, I moved on, well, still doing that, but then moved on to doing uh, kendo and still doing that jujitsu, then moved on later on to goju-ryu, karate, and uh, judo. And then moving on to there, I started with aikido and ii, and, you know, iido, um, and jodo, and then moved to Japan and continued on with, uh, oh, sorry. At the same time, I'd done the Aikido, Jodo, and the Aido. I also had started Hyoho Nitenichiryu, which is the two-sword form of Miyamoto Masashi. Um, and then moved to Japan, continued on with the Nitenichiryu, uh, continued, obviously continued on with Aikido, got into um, the old-school aspect of EI, so not the Eido, but an EI Jutsu. Well, they refer to it as EI Heho um, and Spear. Mm. And that's oh. the rare one. I think I looked up years ago and there was, I, if I remember right, like three schools in the United, in the, the uh, continental United States that did any spear uh, practice or, or spear training at all. I mean, it, it is a very hard, a difficult to find uh, training to get. Well, yes, it is. As I, well, I'm always so cool with my students. So I've only been back in Canada for the past five months. Uh, since being back, I've opened up uh, uh, Hozoin Ryu, which is the spear, dojo, and then teaching EI and Aikido, uh, mm -hmm. two different locations. And um, with the spear, you know, I always tell my students, if you don't like what I have to say, that's very fine. You can go and find another spear dojo somewhere else. I'll even write you a letter of recommendation. Good, and luck, good, with good luck with that one. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
Um, yeah, spear is one of my favorites. I, I did a lot of spear uh, spear work, and it was of all of the medieval type weapons, it was it emerged as my favorite. A uh, lot of fun to do it, and boy, you do learn a lot. I mean, it's basically like fencing with a super long uh, rapier. Uh, well, that's the thing that I like about uh, Hozoin Liu, for example, is Hozoin Liu has a 570-year history. Mm -hmm. And the founder of Hozoin Liu Spear and the founder of Yagyu Shinkage Liu Sword, are you familiar with that school, Yagyu Shinkage Liu? Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the school, Yagyu Shinkage Liu? Yes, I've heard of it. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. So the two founders, so they've maintained a 570-year history of good friendship. And we have, in Japan, when I would do demonstrations, we would do demonstrations together. And then we'd do parties together after. So I had lots of lovely conversations with members of Yagyu Shinkage-ryu. And as explained to me by the headmaster of Hozoin-ryu, is that Hozoin's spear is sword fighting with a spear. Mm. So it's the same principles, just using a very long weapon. Sure. <clears throat> and that's, that's the key word, is the principles. It always comes down to the principles. For sure. Yes, it is. Yep. Yes, it is. The details of the variants are, are less important than those fundamentals. Well, without the fundamentals, you're not, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what you're practicing. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Really, really not sure. You know, sure. It, it's interesting enough, like, for example, where I teach Aikido, there's a, a BJJ guy that runs a class before mine. He's really cool. We chat, like, as we overlap. And, uh, I always love the conversations of, oh, you do Aikido, that's really cool. So you're like all like kata driven and stuff, right? No, we don't, we don't really do that. And I'm like, so you put on a gi and you like get on the mat and just try and rip each other's arms off. Well, no, that would be stupid, you know. We like, I'm so so I tell me how a class goes. Well, we learn a technique. I'm like, uh-huh. And then we like give no resistance and passively like go through the technique. And I'm like, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And then we gradually add resistance. I'm like, uh-huh. And then eventually, like it's just full on rolling. I'm like, so you practice kata. <laughs> they're like no, 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 I'm like no. You practice kata. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't want to say the k word. <laughs> no, they don't want to say it. like it's dirty or something. You know, they just right. don't want to say it. You know, I find that well, that same thing kind of funny with uh, what I'm seeing in the last, uh, well, fairly recently, last few months of, you know, so many of these uh, jujitsu practitioners are coming into wrist locks and like, oh my god, these are great. Wrist locks are great, but they never say the a right. word. They'll never say yeah like, what no. the arts where these things will come from. Which you know, I it's yeah. kind, of, kind of a chuckle. Very true. Very true. So we wanted to talk a little yeah, about today. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was going to say. I, for example, I watched that um, interview you did with uh, Paul Kale Sensei, mm -hmm. and that was just was awesome. It was great. Really, really. Yeah, he, I actually was, shared it, it on my Facebook. Very enlightening talking to him, and I love talking with people that have got such a diverse background and a and a robust one. I mean, for somebody that knows what he's talking about in terms of violence and and. The mindset it takes to apply yourself in in a violent situation i mean i would say he's the second to none um yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah. So yeah but what we wanted to talk about today or you the topic you had on your mind is how the how the weapons work has affected your your aikido and uh and i like that you've had the bouncing background the the, the real violence aspect not just been a theoretical or, a, or an academic <clears throat> martial artist um, and by, by the way, I got a great uh, phrase last week that I've just absorbed and loved. There's, there's a martial artist and a partial artist. And <laughs> I, I really attach to that because I've run across so many martial artists from all sorts of arts that they like doing their, their little thing and they're, they're into that. 
but the rest of what martial arts has to offer, they just don't have either interest or experience in. And usually if they don't have interest, that's why they won't have experience. But, you know, to me, that, that, that comparison of those two terms, martial artist to a partial artist describes a great deal of the mindset of, of a lot of people that practice what they like to practice and don't want to get into anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, unfortunately or fortunately, I guess, however you look at it, I would say that probably most people are never going to physically enact their art in the sense of have to like take on ninjas or, mm -hmm. you know, have to fight Steven Seagal to get to the buffet or, you know, <laughs> or anything, you know, to get to what they, uh, no disrespect intended. Um, worse. You know, uh, but that said, I think, for example, I was, I was talking to, and this does tie into the weapons art. You know, I was teaching my Aikido class last night and I was talking to my student and I said, you know, do you know the concept of my? And mm -hmm. my can be broken down into like a lot of different ways to translate it. The way I like to personally translate it is critical distance. And I said, you know, for every weapon, whether it's hand to hand, you know, you add a knife, now you add a short sword, now you have a long sword against a short sword, you know, as the list goes on, everything has a different critical distance. Where you're in danger or where you're not in danger, but your opponent is, for example, with the spear, you have a mm -hmm. suyari, which is, I'm trying to think how to term it in, for my American friends. Sorry, I'll just use the metric system. Um, three meters or a little more for like the, the, About a nine, the nine unadorned. Feet, nine feet. A little more than that. So, yeah. Yeah, because it's a little more than three meters. But right. so the not crossed spear, the just straight spear versus mm -hmm. the kamayari, which is a, um, at least a good two feet shorter easily. Mm -hmm. And both partners have different critical distance when dealing with each other. Like both have, like the, the critical distance is different. So, where can I hit you where I'm still relatively safe as opposed to where you can hit me where you're relatively safe? And this changes when you deal with weapons. And in my experience with security and everything else, this is a, a fundamentally important thing to understand. Now, what I think is funny and why I brought it up in my Aikido class last night is I told the students, I said, are you even aware of what critical distance is? Do you know when you're in danger? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, most uke act in my opinion like a human sandbag that they're just they, they make the attack they're just going to stand there they're going to resist the technique but there's like several places where they're in danger and they're just not even aware of it and so when i stated that to my students they're like oh that makes sense and i said well isn't awareness of danger kind of like the the primary most important thing you should know as a martial artist like when you're out walking with your girlfriend or wife or significant other however you want to term it i don't know i'm old i don't know how the proper political terms go but you know, don't you want to know when you're in danger? Shouldn't you be aware of when you're in danger? Like, And I don't think you can be a good martial artist without having a thorough understanding of range and a sense of right. exactly what you're talking about. Of Am I in danger? Am I in direct danger? Or I'm right at the edge? Or am I well out of range? Um, right. Because I would say that even a gun has a critical distance. I mean, a gun, if I'm at a distance from you, I'm in a lot of trouble. Now, I'm going to like start that, finish my comment with like underscoring the fact that I don't teach gun disarms. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not saying you can't do it. 
the same. I don't do it. I probably wouldn't do it, but whatever, you know, when rubber hits the road and if you got to do what you got to do to try to like live another moment, I mean, you know, go for it. But, uh, but I mean, if you have like in movies, I think it's hilarious when you see a guy come up and like put a gun, like right, like touching the guy. And I'm like, are you stupid? <laughs> that at least gives the guy an opportunity to like take that gun away from you. I think it probably has to do with like camera angles and like camera widths and sizes. So just stick in the yep. frame. Creating but I'm like, you're dumb. Like touching the guy with your gun, that's just completely stupid. Mm-hmm. You are now, you have lost your critical distance and you're inside of his. Like You have no idea what you're doing with that weapon, mm-hmm. which is a good thing or possibly a bad thing. Either or. Sometimes an idiot with a weapon is more dangerous than an expert. Well, there's, I think that's a general truth of, of just about everything. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, very true. Very true. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and that's, you're right. Keeping that critical range is, is true, especially if you get into grappling range with any hand to hand weapon is, it's going to change the, the nature. Uh, you give up your, your range advantage. Only a fool would, would do that willingly. Absolutely. Absolutely. It'd be the stupidest thing. And then to fight in somebody else's range is not an mm-hmm. intelligent thing to do either. You know, like, for example, if you're going to deal with multiple opponents and I have dealt with multiple opponents in, in my work, mm-hmm. um, since I've come back to Canada, I'm back into doing security, not the same security I was doing before. Now I work in a very high end uh, luxury residence where, for example, the starting range for, for rent is $11,000 a month. and That's rent. Wow. Yeah, so, so it's for, like... For, for what, a, a condominium type thing? No, an apartment. Oh, just an apartment. Okay, well, all just right. an apartment. But you yeah. have a lot of, like, um, UN ambassadors who, like, rent apartments there. And, oh, gotcha. You know, and yeah, rent apartments for their kids. Yeah, it's like... But means the security has to be pretty switched on because you never know. What, like, there's a lot of issues that could come up, right? So... Sure. You know, but my point being that when you're dealing with multiple op- opponents, getting on the ground and grappling with them is probably not your best use of force choice. Sure. <laughs> you know, yep, probably not. And that key mobility is God. Yep, exactly. And, and that's, you know, as much as I admire uh, wrestling, jujitsu, a lot of the ground grappling arts are fantastic training so much to go to the ground purposefully can really bite you in the butt when it comes to an environment where that's, you don't want to do that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Easy absolutely. to train that lizard brain to just go, I want to get in, I want to get in there and submit. I want to get in there and, you know, lock up and control. Well, and the problem is, is that, I mean, media or even social media gets higher on with the whole, um, the whole telling you that that's the way to go and that's what you need to do because 90 percent of the fights end up on the ground so that's and so i think it's almost like the media brainwashes you that that's what you need to do sure. and sometimes that's a good use of force choice use of force option and other times that is not a good use of force. you know and i think that a healthy way to look at it is to make sure that if you are on the ground that you are comfortable enough there that you can get back to your feet you certainly don't want to be drawn out of your comfort zone but mm don't don't make it be that you're so comfortable there that's that's where you want to be all the time like there's there's a there's a line there <laughs> you don't yes, want to absolutely don't want to absolutely cry. yeah and you can know when when you can go there as long as you've got your head screwed on and and are appreciating the entire 
the situation you're in and you can make that conscious choice, but it should be exactly that, a conscious choice that is tactically sound, not one that's just done out of reflex. Well, see, and that leads them to like where I think that weapons have really benefited, not just my Aikido, but benefited my work. Mm. Am I going to use a katana in my security job? No, I'm, I'm not, you know, as cool as that would be. But yeah. You'd make the papers, I'm sure. I would absolutely be front page of the paper. <laughs> <laughs> see, I already figured that when I die that I'm going to make like at least page three of the newspaper because I'm determined to go to Valhalla. So it's either A, I'm going to get shot by a jealous husband or B, I'm going to overestimate myself with a bunch of young guys. You know, so. <laughs> Yeah, you don't get to no. Valhalla by infection by a paper cut. It just no, 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 no. And I want to go to Valhalla, man. So yeah. <laughs> So that, that would absolutely get me on page one. So that yep, would be very cool. That would. Um, the legalities of it would be astounding. But uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, I can't use a sword. But mm -hmm. there's a lot that I think that, the, for example, the study of EI can bring to the table mm -hmm. for, for others. So first and foremost, you're using a sword. So I, I made a compare or I make a comparison. I also do kendo still. So I make a comparison between like kendo and EI, and I'll ask people, which do you think would help you survive better in a weapons, like in, in an armed society, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, everybody's like, well, kendo. And I'm like, I didn't say fighting. I didn't say dueling. I said surviving in an armed, in, in an armed society. So first of all, when you're like doing EI, and especially if everybody's using like real swords, you have to be very conscious of where everybody's placement is in the room. Mm -hmm. because you don't want to get accidentally cut by somebody and you don't want to accidentally cut somebody, right? Two, I mean, for example, and I'm, I'm making a comparison between kendo and EI, not anything else. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in kendo, you've got the men on and it kind of gives you this tunnel vision, which is perfect when you're dealing in a contest with one opponent. Mm -hmm. But in EI, you have kata that are teaching you about like to look with at least 180 to 360 degree awareness. You know, so you have to be very conscious of who's around you and what's going on. And the kata themselves teach you to like, look, look, you know, as you're, you're cutting and doing what you have to do is paying attention to everything that's going on around you, as well as like weapons deployment and weapons retention. There are kata that teach you about someone goes to take your weapons, how to remove it so they can't take it away, to be conscious of someone trying to take your weapon away. And then weapons deployment. You, if you carry a weapon, if you can't retain it, and if you can't deploy it, it really has no meaning. It's merely a decoration, yep. right? True. So, I mean, and these are the things. They'll, they'll, they'll tuck a knife into their belt or in their pocket, thinking, well, if I, if I need to defend myself, I'll just pull this knife out. And they never test themselves. Well, how long it would it take you to pull the knife out? And if it's a folder, to unfold it. Go ahead and try that. See how that goes. Yeah. Now do it under stress. Like you're, you're panicked, and you need to get yeah, that thing. Yeah, when you got fumbly fingers. Quick. You know, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, I, when I said that, I offended a lot of people in the kendo community, which was not my intention to offend them. But they're like, oh, come on, you did kendo. You're, you do kendo. You know that I can. And I said, yeah, but I wasn't talking about being in a duel. You know, I was talking about surviving in an armed society. It's a completely different concept. Sure. And even there, I don't think. So I, I, I have an issue with I, how a lot of people, I think, tend to view like, Aikido techniques or view like EI or Koryu or what have you, and that they view it that you're like enacting a story. Buddy attacks with like attack A, I defend with, you know, 
defense B subsection 12, you the know, database you the correct thing. yes, you know, like the whole bit, that is absolutely not what you're trying to do. In my opinion, mm -hmm. my opinion, what you're trying to do is you're trying to do the neural pathways in your brain, you're teaching the fire in a certain way. I mean, there's always the concept that they talk that you, you, you know, you, you fight the way you train. And I understand what they're saying, but there's a point that you have to develop certain skills. Okay, great example of this. In EI, when you sit down and they have, they call it a four-direction cut, so shihogiri. So you stand in the center and you stab the person to one corner, you cut the person to this corner, you cut the person to this corner, and then you cut the person that was in front of you. As an Aikido man, to think to stand in the middle of four opponents and not move my feet and just pivot and cut them is suicidal. Right. And I used to really bother me when I was, I mean, I did it. I didn't question it and I did it, but I, it bothered me in my soul because I'm going, I would not just stand here with, you know, four switched on. Well, you're with you're overlooking a, a principle, which is don't be in the middle of right. multi, like you're, you know, you're in danger, like in a, you're in the middle of an yes. ambush. Right. So, but here's, but see now, and, and that's a very, very good point, but that's also like looking at it like a story. Sure. So the thing that I, I figured out through more time in doing it was that, ah, it's not about teaching me how to react against four people in a fight. There's other kata that teach me other things to deal with multiple opponents in a different way where I do move and I do get off the line and I do, you know. What it's teaching me to do is to be aware of my surroundings in 360 degrees. Because when you're like cutting and looking, when the eyes are moving, it's making your field of vision change. Mm. The other thing is then working on things like how to use your core to rotate when you're turning, how to like cut with your center, as opposed to just cutting with your arms, you know. Mm -hmm. um, in ones where like they do that one from a kneeling position and you get up onto one foot and you still like one knee on the ground, well, how to like shift your weight because that's a very difficult position to move from. So how to shift your weight. So I think there's a lot of lessons that are in there that are teaching your body important points, mm -hmm. just not the story. Does that sure. make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, and one thing that strikes me too is the, that relationship of EI to uh, Kendo. You can make that parallel, I think, to, and this is something I've been thinking about very recently, which is, uh, Considering the Shoto Seizu principle that control the first move, to me, EI in really captures the focus on controlling that first move. You could even say that if you do it well enough, that EI would be like an ambush art as opposed to a reactionary uh, art. And, and the more you go towards sport, and Kendo is a, a sport where you have two armed ready, now it's go time, that, that you have that scenario versus an EI where you have a so far peaceful exchange. It hasn't gone physical violent yet, but you make that decision of now I know violence is imminent. Now I have to, I have to take action immediately. I'm not gonna wait for somebody else to attack and then I block and respond or go on that defensive part. And I think that weapons or not, that same equation applies to empty hand or any physical conflict. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things, so I hold, um, the, the EI style I do is called Muso Jikiden Eishin Gyu, uh, EI Heiho. So it means the strat strategic method of EI or the, mm. 
warrior's method. Of, there's lots of different ways you can translate keho. But mm-hmm. in the, so I hold the kongun no maki, which is, means like a menkyo kaiden. So a license of full transmission in that school. So in the beginning stages, so I, I, I find it entertaining when people have like an issue, like, well, look at the idol. It's not, it's not realistic. It's not a samurai art because uh, you wouldn't wear a long sword sitting in seiza. And I'm always like, well, sure. Historically speaking, samurai did not wear long swords when they sat inside of a house. And actually, they've pretty much proven that they didn't sit in seiza either. They sat agra, so they sat cross-legged. But anyhow, the point being is that I think it's progressions of teaching how to use your body. But again, it's not a story. So if you look at in the later sections of like Musojika Donation you and they're what they call their their okuyai or their for lack of a better term their secret EI is you're attacking somebody from like under a shelf like a, an outside like a balcony or a porch that you're hiding under the porch and somebody goes by and you attack them coming out from under the porch or you're in a closet so there's a kata called ryozume so you're in a closet and the person's like you know they're there and you draw from that confined space and stab them through the it's very unchristian you know and it's a lot most of their oku ei is all about well assassination cutting sure. people down like from a but i what i think is important i'm not talking the the morality of like is it mm-hmm. correct to like cut a guy down we won't get into the morals of it because mm-hmm. your viewers may not like my moral stance on it but the point being that if you know the practice to do it, you're aware that somebody else will have the same mentality. Yep. So then you're not going to sit with your back to a, to a closet. You know? right. And I think that it points out a couple of things, and you can even do this in the, in, the, in the dojo, is to drive home just how much of an advantage the one who decides to act first gets. And, and it is absolutely, it is, especially if, you know, if you're aware, yeah, you can, you can, the counters are, are a lot easier, but if you're not aware, if you're not ready, you're done. I mean, it's, it, you, you have nothing but, a, but hope and luck to, to survive, to survive an ambush when you're not ready, ready for it or ready to, uh, to see what's coming or to, uh, to react well enough you have like a tiny little window if even i mean a really good ambush doesn't leave you any window to to respond well i mean we look at how it goes of like perceive analyze and react you have to perceive the attack is coming you need to analyze what the distance is and what the threat level is and then you react to it that's a whole lot of time i would not want to spend right yep. you know better to be aware of it second and you don't have time to process much no you don't so better to like I have a very strong practice in myself. Some of it I've actually learned from EI with people like attacking from under porches or attacking from out of closets and this and that is I do not walk down the street with like shop doors, like really close to me. I leave a distance. And that tends to irritate some of the other like sidewalk users, you know, because I'm not apparently walking on the correct side of the sidewalk, but Mm -hmm. I don't care because I, I don't want to get nailed from somebody from around the corner without seeing it coming. Mm-hmm. You know, when I turn a corner, I'm not going to blindly like keep my shoulder to the, to the corner and just turn the corner. Even not getting attacked, people walk around corners. They don't pay attention. You're going to smack into people. And that's just very annoying. 
kind of like you always see in the, the the horror movies where somebody turns around and they back into a dark room. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the dumbest yes. thing ever. Like, why yeah, are you doing that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely not. Not an intelligent choice. Tactically not sound. Exactly. And and I I think you hit it right there that there's there is separating the uh mor- the moral facts from the just the tactical or the the practical application aspect and and no of course we don't want to turn people into assassins or killers that are going to be ambushing people but to realize by going through those scenarios and realizing how vulnerable you can be just like you said you know be careful where you walk be careful not to go near uh, things that that something can jump out at you and i remember going through uh walking through new orleans in the the french quarter one night about one o'clock in the morning and just looking at how the the city was laid out there are dark alleys and corners everywhere where if somebody was there and they just grabbed someone and dragged them they could move them four feet and they'd go from being in a very well-lit street to what looked like you know uh the underworld and yeah never notice it would take a half second maybe and if nobody noticed it, you'd be in a whole different world. So it, it's it's interesting, yeah, that, and just the thought of it is 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 frightening in itself. You know, it is. You know, and and you the, even looking down there, and you know, unlike a lot of modern cities where an alley is you know twenty feet wide because it can have a truck you know that you can back like a delivery truck back into it, and it's got a dumpster or two there. Some of their little little alley sideways are like four feet wide. And they are immediately just go right into darkness. There's no street lights or anything in there. Um, you know, it's it's it, it it was a very interesting learning experience. Studying, you know, not just going through with my friends and having a drink, going from bar to bar, but studying what it would be, what that landscape was like all by myself. Like, boy, this is more dangerous than you think, just because the neon lights are there and you know you got people stumbling around with their their drinks and and whatnot looks benign, but you know, it's a lot of potential for danger in places like that. Well, the, the interesting thing, and I, I really like your, your, you know, the, the arc of that story and and, and its point, you know, Mm -hmm. but on the flip side of that. So 20 years ago, I used to work in this one security building here in the city of Toronto. That was, it was during a crack epidemic. So there was a lot of crack salesmen, okay. a lot of gangsters, you know, all is a very, very, very seedy part of Toronto. Mm-hmm. And I worked there and three blocks away I lived because the rent was really, really cheap. And cause I'm kind of stupid like that. So I chose to live in that kind of neighborhood and the rent was really cheap. Mm-hmm. And so I finished work at three o'clock in the morning and I was walking home, mind you, three blocks away. And there's a, sorry, just thinking the English, um, a shop called George's Chicken, which makes some of the best fried chicken that you'll eat in Toronto. I highly recommend it. It's mm-hmm. so good. Um, but there was like a group of, of 11 guys, because that place closes really late. There's a group of 11 guys sitting out on the front of the, of the shop. And as I walked by, they barked at me like a dog. Woo, 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 bark, barked at me. So I was like, yeah, okay, whatever, buddy. You know, just kept walking. They all got up and started to follow me. Mm-hmm. So I moved down into a very dark alley. As soon as I stepped in the darkness, I turned around and I said, okay, come on. They just walked away. They left. They turned on and went, 
went back. I told my friend about that the next day. And my friend says, you think you're that tough that you're going to take on 11 guys? I says, no, I had no illusions. I'm not going to win. Mm-hmm. I said, but first of all, there's a psychological aspect. I stepped into a dark alley. I'm by myself. There's 11 of you coming. I'm turning and asking you to go ahead and come on. They're not that stupid. They're from that area. They're not dumb. Right. right? And mm-hmm. second of all, well, I'm not going to win against 11. You know, this ain't a movie. And I'm going to get really, really, really hurt if not perish. At least I'll go to Bahala. <laughs> that, that would be a, a, a worthy death. <laughs> it would be a worthy death. At how least uh, how wide was that alley? Was it a like a driving alley or was it a walk? It was a driving alley. So it was big enough a car could go down. But it was sure. quite dark. There's no street lights. Or maybe there used to be street lights and the little gangbangers like took the street lights out. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Good yeah. thing is I moved back to Canada. I teach my sphere in the same neighborhood. Yeah, the neighborhood okay. has not really changed. Really? All that time, the neighborhood has not really changed. I think the the chemical of choice is now different. Now it's like ketamine, but sure, you know, it, you yeah, know, the trends fentanyl and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So the crack is maybe not as, but although I still see some guys stepping into like alleyways, and you, you see the numerous times they light the lighter, which I know exactly what's going on when they do that. And I'm like, oh, there we go, yeah, crack. <laughs> sure. Yeah, the um, that that's an I, I really like that story of the stepping into the dark because that's the thing you know we all little as little kids we're always afraid of the dark you know we like comfort is when lights are on and and uh, dark is your friend there's exactly in there but there's a I'm sure they also had the feeling of they have a little fear of the dark so of course just because they had the numbers doesn't necessarily mean that that deep rooted fear of the the dark which represents the unknown. You don't want to step into the unknown, especially when you can't see what's what's in there. Um, that that good on you. That was uh, that was very clever. My friend, I will tell you, I've had a couple of times where someone tried to break into my my house or my apartment, not in Japan, in Canada. And I have a very steadfast rule: I don't turn on the lights. Okay. And the reason I don't turn on the lights is because it's my house. I know where everything is. You don't know my house. So you don't know where you're going. And then second of all, as well, welcome to the ride. Come on in. And I'm yep. pleased anybody understanding when I say that. It's not that I think that I'm that tough. Mm-hmm. It's just that I have, anyway, yeah, I'm not that tough. I just, but it's welcome to the ride. Yep. You know. Yeah, it's funny. And when when I you was, keep low when and look up, you can see well. That same thing. I, I didn't like the dark. I didn't like the basement in our house. And I mean, you know, I'm four or five years old. And then I don't know what happened. I hit maybe like eight or nine. And I just suddenly liked the dark. I would keep the lights off almost everywhere and i got feeling the same thing you did is i know this this realm better than anybody else that comes in here and yep. and i grew to like the dark even to this day i will keep most of the lights in the house off um you know unless i absolutely need them but i like navigating with very little little light and you know if i heard a bump or something everything would be off um yeah it's, it's a yeah. whole different you look at something that that sponsored fear in you when you were young but you under, get, come to understand it you look at it in, entirely differently yeah, it becomes your friend right exactly you know and, and light i mean i'm i'm a denzian of the night in the sense that i will always pretty much predominantly always work night shift with security i still work and i i came back i started working security they asked you know what shift would you like i'm like nights mm-hmm. and like, nobody wants to work nights i said yeah i know nobody wants to work nights so i'll take nights does, does pay, working nights pay more then? <laughs> Actually, it does. There's a shift premium. So it does. Well, pay I'm more. sure because, you know, if a lot of people don't like it, then 
you know, once if you get it, you get paid better. So, and the more interesting people come out at night. (laughs) That this is true. Which is a reason, another reason that a lot of people don't want to work it. Mm hmm. Yeah. It's very, nothing good happens after 10 p.m. (laughs) Yeah. You have less backup. So it's, uh, yeah, people don't like it. So they do have a shift premium. So they do pay more. Sure. Yeah. I'll I'll take the pay. Mm -hmm. And I just prefer to work at night. I, I like the interesting people at night. Yeah, the day can be pretty quiet. I I noticed when I was in Tokyo that the daytime and the nighttime are like a totally different city. Uh, just oh my god, the, yeah, the traffic and people, and I'm sure all, almost every city is like that. I mean, here in Minneapolis, you know, it's like, of course, it's gotten a lot more different in the last couple of years. But um, yeah, night, you know, difference in night and day, as the old saying goes. Yep, yep, Toronto as well. You know, yeah. absolutely come back here after 11 year hiatus and i'm like okay well some things change some things never change (laughs) yep that's it um so what are some other things that you can think of that uh your weapons work has affected your aikido oh my friend there's there's like a a vast amount of things so i mean other than just like tactical concepts like distancing and and you know always entering i mean the one thing you always learn against a weapon is that backing away is not a tactically sound concept you want to enter in right Mm -hmm. so now we have the concept of irimi Mm -hmm. you know so always entering in always moving in never backing away you know controlling center Mm -hmm. taking over making integrity in my kamai and integrity in my center and taking and taking my 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 opponent's center Mm -hmm. you know this is something very much taught in weaponry but also, well, absolutely is, is I, I believe, a fundamental aspect of Aikido is I have to have integrity of my center and I have to control yours. I have to own it. I own the space. It's my space. You know, so I have to take it. Um, I also believe it's not a matter of, I recently talked about like the concept of like Tenkan, that I believe that Tenkan is, you know, so turning or rotating, that if you watch a lot of Aikido videos, it's one of those kind of hallmark signs of Aikido is this spinning, dancing sort of like look, and it looks very visually appealing. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool. I look at it a little differently. I believe that I'm not the one who's spinning and rotating, but that I'm constantly threatening your center, which keeps you off balance, that you're trying to move to a place of safety and I just continue the pressure. Mm-hmm. So I become the center and you rotate around me. Sure. You know. And this is something that I've learned from my weapon work. But the other points that I've learned is some physical aspects of things like open and close. Mm. So like in the spear, for example, if I do like kamuri, you can't see my head. So if I do kamuri, I bring the spear up and then how to like drop the spear to an active technique, but not doing it with my arms or my shoulders, but doing it with my entire body. But then opening the front of the body or opening the back of the body and then closing the front of the body to like, to create power in the technique you know um works as well with sword you don't swing a sword with your shoulders you swing a sword by opening up your you know opening your back and then closing your front you know Mm. and that works very very well in aikido technique i mean that's everything you you should be in my opinion you should be doing you know opening and closing Mm -hmm. the other the other aspect is for example with ei of things like Seiza or Tatehiza. Tatehiza is you have one knee up and the other leg in Seiza. 
if you thought Cesar's uncomfortable, Tate Hizer's like, like the demented like half brother of Cesar that just you go okay, you Japanese people like really have a twisted mind because you know would you create that describe, guam? Describe that position. I'm curious. So you take your left leg and it's under your your butt like Cesar. Okay. And you put your right. So this is my knee. Mm-hmm. So you put your right foot beside your left knee. Okay. Flat on the floor. So your 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 right knee is now up. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's really that. uncomfortable. I didn't know that it was named that. Yeah, it's called Tate. So maybe different schools have different names, but uh, okay. I think some, some refer to it as I mean, like a Yai Goshi. In my school, they call it Tate Hiza. Hmm. But one of the benefits of learning things from Seiza is when you get up and down, and then ones where you have to get up and you're, you're rotating up, is you really learn about like how to close your legs to like enact the muscles to like push your, your body straight up and getting up and, and turning and rotating in some, you know, 90 degrees and other ones, 180 degrees, you know, while drawing a sharp sword and using it, which there's like definitely a pucker factor involved with drawing a large sword when you're like rotating and spinning on the floor from a sure. kneeling position, you know, you can, the sword is not very forgiving and she will kiss you when she wants. Right. Yeah. So, so learning yeah, to do those things, even a platform for, to do, to, to do the, the upper body, get it to where it needs to be to, to move correctly. That would be very challenging to keep a stable base through a movement like that. That's right. So now if you can do that from a kneeling to a standing position, mm-hmm. now imagine what you can do standing. You've already developed the base. Right. I always look at what a lot of what we do in Aikido, or then therefore EI or Hozoin or what have you, is you're building a scaffold. Mm-hmm. So you're building a scaffolding inside of your body to learn to deal with, with uh, pressure. So in the Japanese, they would say like panengeko, so how to... For example, if a good strong shomenuchi or a good strong yokomenuchi is coming in, of how not to block and stop it with your arms, but how to catch it in your arms and drop it down into your core. Mm. So this is what they will call tanengeko or like pressurizing, or well, they call it forging. Tanen means forging, but anyway, it's like mm. a pressurizing. I think those are like part of building the scaffolding of the body of what you need. And one of the things I've a lot of benefit from for example, EI of that from a kneeling position to a standing position while turning in, in sometimes 180 degrees turning really gives you an acute sense of balance and leg power. And to not rely, you can't rely on your arms in a leaf. Zero. You can't rely on it. Everything has to be done with your legs. And that's mm-hmm. what you should be doing in Aikido. Technique should come from the legs, not from the arms, in my opinion. Exactly. Yep. You know, yeah, it's, it's funny how, how many times I, I will see people, especially as intermediates and whatnot, and they, they watch the arms do a technique like a, you know, a Nikio or Ikio or anything like that, and they're watching the arms, watching the hands, and then they go and they don't do anything with the legs. And then you can just see how they run into the wall where you know, you, they can't push with their chest or their shoulders to get the technique to work. And you know, it's like, all right, now they could doing it with the legs. Like it, the legs are just everything. It comes from, that's where all of this stuff happens is from the legs. Well, the Japanese have a saying about the, the, the four methods of learning. So from most important to least important. Mm. So in Japanese, it goes, ishin, nigan, sansok, yonte, mm. which in English means first the mind, mm-hmm. second the eyes, 
third, the legs, and last, the hands. Mm. Yeah, I, I approached it the entire backwards way when I was coming up because I fell into just what every student does is like, I'd see, I'd oh, see, yeah. I remember the very first class I journaled, like all everything I learned in class. And I remember the very first page of my journal had this really jacked up drawing of what the hand position was, because I was like, boy, this is not easy. I, I want to try to remember this. And uh, it took me a while to get to the point where my perception was open enough to start realizing. And I almost remember the class that this happened. I was like, I'm watching my instructor. I'm like, What's his hips? What are his hips doing? What's his center and his and his legs? Because the center moves because of the legs. So, what are the yeah, legs yeah. doing? And I, from that moment on, I started watching technique, not from the hands and the arms, but more from the legs and the center and the shifting. Uh, 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 and, and that was a that was like a light bulb moment of how I changed how I watched techniques done in demonstrations and when I studied other practitioners doing their thing. It that just change the whole world around i i want to just think that's really cool because i thought i was one of the few people who used to keep a training diary and do little <laughs> drawings and stuff because i used to do that too yeah. um the other one is that i i also when i used to watch especially with aikido because aikido techniques can be quite complicated compared to some other martial arts mm -hmm. so i used to like but i used to even from but i've been doing i don't know I don't know why, but I used to always watch my teacher's feet because mm -hmm. he would show a technique only three times. That's it with mm -hmm. minimal amount of explanation. So I would watch his feet. Then the second time you do it, I would watch his hands. And then the third time you do it, I took what they call like a hangan no metsuke. So kind of half close my eyes and just sort of take like a, I don't know, like an overall picture, but mm -hmm. not like with a sharp focus, but they call like a half focus. Okay just to see how, how it all looked in one, but without definition. I don't know. I can't explain that, but, sure. but it worked anyway. It theoretically worked. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, I guess, you know, the, that's proof it, in the, and the more I go along, I really do like watching the feet because they will, the more, the more you understand balance and posture, the more, in my opinion, you start to see the bad habits that come out in the feet. They're, they're like little, signs almost of they'll tell you what's what's going on with somebody's movement and it's well, it it's really fascinating well my friends for example in hozoin they have a kuden so kuden is like a, a verbal teaching so they say with the spear keep your hands in pi so in this case when they write the character for pi it means waiting or mm -hmm. no tension and keep your feet in ken and in this case when they say can, it means with tension or active. They said that you should enable technique like a waterfowl. Mm. So what that means is that the legs drive everything and the upper body should look very relaxed Classic. and calm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that you're, but everything is driven with the legs. And, and I, in teaching that last Sunday, you know, with my sword students talking about it, I said, you know, you're trying to create pressure with your spear using your hand. Mm -hmm. And that's completely wrong. I said, if you're trying to create pressure, you, and I got this from Kendall, pressure starts with the feet. You create pressure or semi, you create it with your feet. Absolutely. You know, and it's one of the things that I, see, I like your podcast. I like that you have a very like wide range of like looking at things and you get a lot of really interesting people on here other than myself. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, I've lucked but, out you know, finding some great guests, that's for sure. Oh, really interesting people. And and one of the things that a lot of times I get almost disappointed with Aikido. Mm-hmm. And it's not Aikido's technique. It's that a lot of Aikido people tend to look at everything in a very, how do I say this where it's not so insulting? Because I'm not trying to be insulting. A one-dimensional way. That is the technique. So they don't bother talking about, well, how do you get from A to B? How do we get to the point that I'm getting into a technique in the first place? Mm-hmm. How do I create pressure? How do I do things where there's like a sasoi or, because I don't believe, so I'm, I, I'm sure you must know the concept like go no sen, sen no sen, and sen sen no sen, right? Yep, absolutely, I yeah. don't personally believe in go no sen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't react to your attack. Pretty much, pretty much diminished to, now you're now you're bailing yourself out of an ambush that's already caught you, and that's you the should worst, have seen it. That's the worst situation you can be in. Yep, that's right. So I, I don't believe there, I put an asterisk on that and say the only time I've seen that effectively dealt with is with what I call a counterpuncher, and there are certain people that okay, are yeah, really yeah. well, they're really good at a, at being a counterpuncher, but that's in true. every case they tend to come from a fairly specialized sport where they're lo- looking at a fairly limited repertoire of what they could be faced with unlike a real yeah. ambush where you have no idea what you're going to be faced with so that's a good point yeah, yeah. That, but that's about the only exception that i can think of but boy i would never want to be in that go no sen boat that's just not, not not a fun place to be um, no i i believe in as i said sen no sen or sen sen no sen right you know <clears throat> Now, I'm not going to come from the moral high ground and say, it's because I sensed that you were thinking of attacking me, is that I right. thought you were a threat, I'm going to eliminate the threat. And mm-hmm. by eliminate, let's be clear about that, you know, right. within the legal realm of things. And, you know, mm-hmm. So we're talking about my job. Because, right. well, again, for clarity, I don't walk out on the street and get fights. Preemptively take action to eliminate the ability for somebody to harm you. And that doesn't mean harming them necessarily, but to take away their means of... Exactly causing you harm and I, and I would say like bouncers if they see somebody and I had a friend of mine who was a bouncer and they, he'd show me this trick it was great if you see somebody with a knife and I'm sure you know this trick knife with a clip on it that's in their pocket he said you, you just go up with a string and you lift it and it would pop the knife right out so you just basically right. take the right. knife away so it's yeah. not like you need to attack and hurt the person but you want to take no. away their to harm you yeah said, well I mean my, club, my views on sorry yeah yeah, go ahead. My my views on my views on like for example self defense is really boiled down into like four parts: environmental awareness, situational awareness, command presence, and tactical communication. Mm-hmm. That's as far as I'm concerned. Everything you need to know about self defense. Sure. That if you just even hold the correct posture, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't mean I don't mean posturing. I mean just holding the correct posture. You know, you can. You can convey to people that it's not a good idea to bother to move further. You know, and that's probably the best articulation I've heard that that describes the mindset. Like you've described the four aspects of that underlying mindset of I'm going to be in control of this situation. And you've described each of the four ways of exactly how. Sometimes I say something a little bit smart, my friend. (laughs) Not not often. I have a moment. Moment, moments of clarity every now and then. It's, it's usually between <laughs> sips of whiskey. <laughs> you are wise. 
Um, yeah, the uh, I was going to say something now. I blanked on it because I'm I'm loving how how we're just rolling on to different topics um, <laughs> with this. But uh, I oh I remember what it was. One of the things that I noticed from from my weapons work, and uh, and I competed in a in a contact weapon art. But the one thing that I saw in there and I remember was you really are looking to fit in when somebody is in the midst of their attack or they're about to launch their attack or you're seeing them start to mount up, you want to spot the opening that you can close. And you covered that in, in your description of you want to close that distance and it's a when can I do it and how can I do it safely? That's the big key. And I think here's the one that Aikido tends to miss as a trend, not across the board, but a lot of people are it's that strike that ends the engagement that is the alt or the cut as it is often described in Japanese. It's the cut that ends the fight and you have to enter to get that cut. You have to proactively put pressure to set your opponent up for your cut to land successfully, but that cut is what ends it. And whether it's empty hand, that might be your throw, that might be your lock, that might be your technique, with a sword, that would be your cut. With a spear, it would be your, your thrust. That's the ultimate goal is to end that engagement. You're not playing with your food. You're not, you know, horsing around. It's, I have to end this. And it's just the, what exactly is the end? With a spear, it would be you'd pretty much kill somebody. Same thing with a sword. The sword is kind of like, kind of like gunfire. You're not just going to get somebody to submit by lightly shooting them or lightly cutting them or stabbing them um and this is where the empty hand has a little bit more nuance to it of getting somebody to submit i suppose if you really had tons more skill than your attacker you could humiliate them into submitting without having to cut them apart but um by that might be a victory for day but not a victory three weeks down the road one right on the exactly <laughs> but i think the the mindset of of and I would call this Irimi, but to take it to the, that level of, I need to end this engagement and I need to right. do it quick and, and not mess around. I think that that's, that's something that I, that, that comes from the, that weapons work and you can feel it, especially from a sports setting, like with Kendo or with, um, you know, something that does not have physical injury uh, or, or worse waiting on the other, on the other end of it, but you can feel that, that, impending necessity yeah yeah well i mean i like how you put it and, and i agree it's a terminology i use for my spear students with my sword students and with my aikido students all the same same words three different critical distances same words my uke i pressure him to move in a certain way i fill that space that's how mm -hmm. technique works he yeah. moves i fill the space mm -hmm. You never, he who controls the distance controls the war. Absolutely. He who controls the space. So, you know. Sun Tzu would approve of that statement. <laughs> yes, he would. <laughs> you know, and it is funny because the more I, I would go back to strategy and the more I go back to it again and again and again, I read up, I see so many parallels of where if, the, if, if what you do with your martial art does not match the principles of strategy, something's wrong. There's something wrong mm. with that, the technique or the practice or the mindset or what you would call it. I mean, it has to fit within those principles of strategy if it's going to be sound. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, I think 
I think techniques are all about trying to teach you the principles and therefore trying to teach you things like strategy. So mm -hmm. I think the, the importance or the emphasis on technique in and of itself is incorrect in my, my mm -hmm. opinion. It's merely a vehicle. Sure. It's really something that's there to teach me um, develop body skills and mm -hmm. to create neurons to fire in a certain way and to teach me like the principles of what's supposed to work. And as I said earlier, this is where my, one of my arguments with Aikido is, is that we never talk about, we talk about the, the A and B of doing the technique, but we didn't talk about the, you know, subsection 12 of how did we get there? <laughs> right. You know? And you know, as, you, as you mentioned that, I, I thought of, uh, you know, the line that Bruce Lee put in, in Enter the Dragon about, you know, if I point at the moon, don't look at my finger. <laughs> you know? and, I, and I think a lot of that happens with, with when you do technique, you just think of walking through, trying to put your feet in the right place, hands in the right place. You're, all you're doing is really intently staring at the finger. I mean, you, well, need, that, it to, I mean, you need it to guide you like the finger yes. pointing at the direction, but it's not the finger itself. It goes well beyond that. And there's a point, I mean, in, for example, I think in teaching Aikido or in teaching sword or teaching spear that, I mean, it's a matter of just learning the shape. Mm -hmm. So you have to spend the time to learn the shape. But I think there has to come a point that you go beyond the idea of just the shape and you have to start talking about, well, what is the underlying principle? How does Uke move this way? How do I force them to go where I want them to go. Because in my opinion, that's what Aikido is. Mm -hmm. Aiki is to make your opponent do what you want them to do. Takeda mm -hmm. Sokok said that to Weishiba Morihei Sensei, and Weishiba Morihei Sensei told that to his student, um, uh, Takeshita Isamu, who was the admiral of the Japanese Navy, and that's written in his diary, that Aiki mm -hmm. is to make your opponent do what you want them to do. Nice. So yeah, and, I really look at that. Quite a few Aikido people would find that disquieting. <laughs> that, of course they would. Because it's it seems obtrusive. It doesn't seem like you're just letting Uke's energy be, you know, basically come towards you, which any smart warrior or fighter would be, uh, I don't think they'd find that comfortable, letting letting their attacker do what the, that attacker wants to do. It's it's much better to influence and and control, even through su subtle and cunning means rather than brute force means. Obviously, um, but I think that you know uh, I've heard a lot of Aikidoists condemn the the concept of controlling someone and thinking that it's only brute force that does it. But it's it's often other influences that are not brute force that that. Like you said, the pressure, the, the positioning, controlling range, all those things are, are quite subtle, but when done well, are very powerful. Yes. Well, and for those, those you know, who hear and, and um, what I have to say disturbing, um, my apologies. And if they write me a letter, I will send them uh, a gift certificate for granola. <laughs> and some soy. <laughs> and some soy, that's right. Some soy and some granola. <laughs> and I'll tell them, I'm sorry, I didn't think I couldn't hear them over the crunching of the granola. <laughs> Soak it in more soy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. Uh, well, and you know, and that's, if there's one thing that I think has been neglected in a lot of Aikido, is that a Rimi part? The, it, do you have the option? Can you go and finish this? And if so, do it. Don't delay, get it done. And then, you know, obviously the, the technical part is seeing the opportunity, know, knowing what's an opportunity and what is not. 
being able to recognize it. But if you recognize it and you don't have the heart to say, all right, there it is, and I'm taking it. To me, that's the, the, that warrior mindset part, that assertive side of the brain that says, there's my, there's my slot, now I need to go. And this is going to be over in, in a second or two. Well, I mean, maybe my history is off and I don't claim to be a historian. I'm not a researcher other than the schools that I belong to in the sense of the Koryu that I belong to where I do research their stuff. But I never heard of any dojo trying to create a bunch of beta individuals, you know. So to take a mental stance of something, and some people will view it as being aggressive, and it's not aggressive. Assertive and assertion and aggression are not the same thing in my, That's in true. my opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, and to be assertive, I I don't view as a negativity. Mm -hmm. Then again, I also don't view a certain level of aggression as being like a negativity either. But sure. you know, I mean, as they get older, a certain amount of that gets tempered in my youth of certain neighborhoods and environments I grew up in, that if you were not assertive you would have had a whole lot of trouble. And so maybe well, it's know, my personality, I, maybe it's my environment, I don't know. I've heard from uh, some of my, my friends in law enforcement that about eight or 10 years ago here in Minneapolis, they started uh, pulling uh, street patrols back just because it was being viewed as being more politically correct to not have a police as much of a police presence downtown. And a lot of the- How'd that work for y'all like three years ago? Not good, not good. Um, <laughs> But one of the things that that the street people would start to do is that they called aggressive panhandling. So you can kind of reverse this around and see what assertiveness, how it benefited these people. What they would do is they'd approach somebody, usually, you know, your typical suburban looking, uh, you know, passive type person. They'd walk up to him, get real close, start talking to him, put a hand on the shoulder. Hey, can you, you know, I just need some bus fare, the whole nine yards. And then they'd start to put their hand in the in the pocket. Oh, do you have just have a buck or two? Now, meanwhile, the average suburban enlightened, you know, granola person or whoever would just be in shock that somebody would come up and get in their space. They'd be in shock that somebody put their hands in their, you know, in their pocket, maybe take their wallet out and they don't know what to do. They've never been in a hand, hand situation. This is, they, they couldn't, can't even believe it. They sit there frozen and get just, it's not even pickpocketed. They just get outright robbed. And, yeah. and so, you know, you turn that around, basically that, that street person is what the one who's being assertive towards the victim, yep. not aggressive, yep. just assertive, no yep. harm or injury happens from it, but without being able to spot that assertive intrusive behavior and being able to have a boundary and saying, no, you need to stay back you know, keep your hands off me, et cetera. That's how it played out. And um, yeah, it's. I had it beautifully put by a friend of mine who works in Canada here. We used to work together in the hospital and security, and now he works for a nuclear power plant and security, which is in Canada has a whole different mandate because of terrorism and that, you know, he's a very switched on guy, takes a lot of like college courses on like uh, criminal intelligence analysis and stuff like that. So we have, a lot of really interesting conversations and is a Kyokushin Kai karate guy. So he's a very interesting guy. So we talk and he said, you know, at one time society knew there was the wolf and knew the need of, you know, the sheepdog, knew the worth of the sheepdog because society knew there was a wolf. 
Then society kind of was not sure if there was a wolf or not. So tolerated the sheepdog because they were like, well, maybe there's a wolf, maybe there's not. We'll wait and see. And the current generation seems to think that the wolf is just a misunderstood pet. Right. Yep. You know, and that we need to like, well, if we just like brush it out and give it a bath and give it a cookie, you know, it won't be a wolf anymore. And yeah, good luck. They've with never that. seen or heard of a wolf attack. So they're like, this, it's, this is overblown. This threat is just not, yeah. you know. No. I am not a tough man by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not a tough guy, but I have my circle around myself. It is my personal space and I own that space. And I, I would definitely not invite very many people to step inside of my circle because I will aggressively maintain my circle. Right. Yeah, there has to be health, healthy boundary setting in order to sur survive as an adult, whether that's social boundaries, physical boundaries, uh, they're both the same. But to have none or to say when you say no and to have somebody ignore that and you don't react or respond, then saying no is pointless. If you're not willing to re reinforce your boundaries or, or uh, protect them. Um, and I think that's a common thing with people just getting taken advantage of in general, whether it's, hey, can I borrow your, your lawnmower? And if you can't say no, there goes your lawnmower. Okay, can I borrow your car? Well, no, you can't say no. So there goes your car. I mean, well, the funny thing is now the current generation of people, sorry, mm -hmm. sorry, no, no the current yeah, generation of people, anything, yeah. if I say no, so on the street here in Toronto, so, mm -hmm. and I live in not a great neighborhood, I'm cool like that because my wife is still in Japan. I'm still waiting for her to come over until things relax. So I'm here by myself. So I choose a cheaper apartment and not such a great neighborhood. So mm -hmm. other people are like, Hey man, give me some money. You know, hey, give me some change. Give me some money. I want to buy a coffee. Buy me a coffee. And I'm like, no. And they're like, why? What, what, why? And I'm like, you know, we have a social contract. You ask a question, I give you an answer. Therefore, our social contract is finished. You know, no. there is no need to further debate why. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I always find it from younger people. They're like, well, why? Well, what do you mean, why? I said, no. First of all, I don't know you. And second of all, like, I said no. That's the end of the story. What's with why? I don't right. get it. There's a certain level of entitlement that just blows my mind, you know? Yeah. Well, you owe me an explanation. Well, they haven't said that, you know? But, right. You know, I, I could see it between mouthfuls of granola. Of, like, you owe me an explanation. <laughs> right. It's like, no, nah, I don't owe you anything. And I gave an answer. And that's, that's the answer is no. And that's it. There is no why. I don't have to explain it to you, you know? You yeah, ask I, favor, I, said, I don't no. think that's being cruel or harsh. That's just being no. forthright. It's here, here's the boundary, you know, um, and this could even go for, uh, you know, a young lady or, or girl going out on a date and so their date starts putting their hands all over her and she says, no, don't, you can't, don't touch. Me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I would love to see where more women really would love it with a, like a tactical presence and like, or a correction, a command presence and tactical communication to like learn if a guy decides that, well, no means, no means yes. Or like, what? no, like buddy, get it. No, I've never in my 52 years of, of living, you know, rotating around the sun, you know, I have never been like, you know, a girl, if she says like, yeah, no, then no, no. Yeah, no is no. And 
that's it. I got no right to invade your space. If you don't want it invaded, it ain't invaded. You know, yeah. I'd like to see more women be able to take control of that. That would make me happy. Uh, that would make me happy as well. <laughs> you know, um, you know, and 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 I realize there's usually a disparity of of force. You know, because women tend to be smaller, tend to be weaker. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and but but I do think. Uh, and this is, I love the concept I got from another instructor many years ago, the, the eight pound cat, you know, the eight pound cat house cat doesn't seem like much of a problem. <clears throat> you try to give it a bath and then it turns into a big problem. So just, just size alone, it's does not, is not as much of a factor as the, the heart and the passion behind not taking a bath when you don't want one. Um, oh my God. I've told women. If a guy comes up and he gets aggressive and like gets in, I mean, like you have to judge use of force and when it's it's reasonable, but hit him in the throat, drive your thumb in his eye because men will protect their groin. We get kicked in the groin since we're kids, so we've learned very quickly to protect it. I hit him in the throat, go for his eyes, just rip into him. Like you be that nightmare he never wants to like, you know, eat his ear. No. And I think any any adult that's dealt with a, a tantruming nine-year-old or seven-year-old knows it, just because you have size on them does not mean they're easy to handle uh, or easy to control. That's that's far from nope. the truth. Um, no, nope. of course, having training is is definitely preferred, but having that heart inside of you that says, "No, I'm not going to be controlled and I'm not going to be dominated," is I think that's that's the important part. If anything, training helps kind of fan that that spark of defiance within somebody into a, into a, a flame, into a full on fire. So they, they not only can, they know that they have the tools, they have the confidence, but can let that side of the mountain say, no, this is not going to happen. Um, yeah. And I think that's every adult, every human being needs to have that, that level of some level of confidence in about their setting boundaries and re and enforcing them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, although I think we may have strayed a little bit from our from our original topic of the weapons and and uh, and whatnot, well, but, but we had it though, really. Yeah, it's. I, I think that that weapon does give you that emboldening type of a of a feel uh, when you pick up something meant to do damage. You you feel like you are now empowered or in, or you are capable. So let's let's sum it up this way: when I pick up a spear, or when I pick up a sword. I realize that I'm holding a tool with an intent. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to use it to cut vegetables. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not going it, to, it's not there to open a bag of chips. You know, it's, I understand what its purpose is. You can look at it. It's very easy to understand. It, it's clear as day. Herein lies what I think the Aikido community needs to accept and they i think they need to accept it and realize they're not losing something at the same time does the message of aikido of like peace and harmony everything is it a good message well let's just take a current look at our world it's a good message and it should stand but it can only stand if there's a martial integrity to it a pacifist who has yeah, no well other said. choice a pacifist that has no other choice but to accept the road of non-aggression is not a true pacifist a pacifist is a person who is capable of exacting a great amount of aggression and chooses not to. Mm -hmm. It's their choice. That's a real pacifist, in my opinion. So sure. although, given our current circumstances, global circumstances, meaning that absolutely the message of Aikido stands, 
That said, I think we need to realize that it's a martial art. There is no way when I, you know, look at Wishima Morihei Sensei's book in like, you know, 1936, Budo. I think it was 1936, maybe 1939. But anyway, Budo, martial way. We need to view it as the tool that it is and understand that this is a tool that has a purpose. And I think if we understand that that tool has a purpose like a sword, and since Aikido is often referred to as the physical principles or the physical manifestation of the sword, I'll leave that for much more intelligent people to talk about, mm-hmm. that we understand that it's a tool with a purpose. If we keep that purpose in mind and train with that purpose in mind, it doesn't mean we have to give up the other message. If anything, it gives us a way to enable that that other message from a position of power as opposed to a position of no choice. And isn't that where the, the phrase of the sword that gives life and the sword that takes life comes from? It's one of many, yes. To, to that, yes. you know, sword is a sword. It's, it, like I said, it's not made for spreading butter. It's nope. made for a specific purpose. And, you know, I've also heard it stated as, you know, where my sword is drawn, peace follows. And you could argue with that one and say, well, you know, if a tyrant kills a rebel, then there's peace, but it's the tyrant's peace. He gets to still be a tyrant. And so I think that that, that, that would be a, a fair perspective. But uh, the fact that you can't just, you know, kill your opposition, but the idea that there's conflict and with, within that conflict, you know, I suppose the next thing you like, all right, no, who's in the right? Is it the the... the rebel or is it the tyrant who's in the right that determines the uh justified use of violence and uh but that that becomes a matter of morality then not so much a which one had the ability to to end the other one and generally the tyrant has the ability and the rebel has to fight to get that ability and often loses but um but it then comes into that that moral range and this is where i think pacifism is is uh attractive as a moral um to people who want to be moral by saying well if i'm incapable of of the unjust use of force because i can't use force at all now you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, um and all it takes is somebody who can use force to come along and you're done no matter who's in the right or or not it's over for you well, all it does is it takes your inability to act and puts the responsibility on others. Well, society then needs to look after me. Right. It's your responsibility. I'm the weak part, so you need to look after me. Sure. That's what we have the system in place for. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's all in, all in good, and law is important, and we need to keep society needs to be harmonious, and it needs to, we need rules to govern us because we're pretty stupid, hairless apes. And if we don't have any rules, and anarchy is not a good idea. But the, the, the expectation for, I think my issue is that the expectation of society to, to protect me and look after me, I don't like so much. But that's well, because I don't like most people. It violates the, the basic human behavior that nobody protects their own stuff like they do. Nobody mm-hmm. else is going to look after you or your, or your belongings as, as well as you will. Yeah. It's just, that's just how human beings behave. And, you know, as we say down here, I'd be, you may have had the same phrase up there of, you know, when seconds count, the police are minutes away. And that's well, just pure logistics. That has nothing to do with morality. That's just pure on, you know, that is what it is. 
I love it. That's a beautiful saying. We probably wouldn't say it in Canada because Justin wouldn't speak with that. <laughs> you know, he used to be a drama teacher and all. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So is he out of hiding yet? <laughs> is he still in the Oh, <laughs> see, I love you. That's awesome because that's something that I immediately threw. As soon as that convoy thing got going, he, he, he oh. suddenly needed to like have five days of like, you know, self-isolation. I'm like, well, you know, that's the, that's the problem when you have a beta male trying to exert himself on a world stage. Yeah. And that's also the thing of tyrants is they're often cowards. And this is the same thing with bullies, same things with thugs, same thing with, you know, right down the line is that aggression comes from a deep seated fear or trauma. Now you don't need to turn into a psychologist, but you still have to recognize it and know that you know, they're probably not as scary as they, they're making themselves out to be. And, you know, I, I like, I like it when people will stand up to bullies and thugs because they are cowards. Yep. So very well put my friend. Thank you. That's uh, bullying is a, a topic close to my heart. I, I wrote a book on it because I just, I feel very strongly that especially with children, boy, there's no better time to learn how to deal with bullies when they're real amateurs than when they're kids. Yeah, when that's true. They aren't corrected when they're kids, when it's a pretty low ante on the table, they grow up and be adult bullies. And then they started getting, then it starts getting out of control. And in yeah. order to correct it, it takes a lot to, to get them back on track and a lot never, never do. Even when they do yep. get their ass whipped a number of times, they never, they never learn that, you know, being violent on other people is not the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed, my friend. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we've covered a lot. Is there any anything more that you can think of you want to toss in here? No, I think I pretty much like had diarrhea of the mouth and like <laughs> spewed it all out there for like everyone to do, you know, to. Well, I'm to glad we got to chat it. again because I always get a lot out of our discussion. So it's always fun. Oh, it's always nice to see your handsome face, sir. <laughs> well thank you and, and welcome back to canada it's nice to uh have you, you back on this side of the planet i'm not sure yet whether i'm happy about being back in this country but that's okay that remains to be seen well you have to be happy about getting your own dojo up and going and it looks like you got some students that's and, true and well working you know it, it takes you know nothing nothing helps itself so that's true i'm just an, it's, I'm it's a determined individual yeah the world needs more of you my friend Oh, no, they don't, sir. That would be the worst thing to ever wish on the world. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, thank you, Reg, for, for coming on and having another great discussion. Uh, I got a lot, uh, a lot out of it, as usual. Um, stay warm up there, and, and I hope things go well for thanks. you, and I hope you, you're, you, and you get to rejoin your wife and have her come back as, as soon as possible. Yes, thank you, my friend. You take care as well. All right, take care now. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Stay tuned for more episodes. I've got some great stuff on the way very soon. In the meantime, enjoy your training.